Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, and I give my recommendations for that Monday night community group. So uh, I hope you guys show up. I won't be there, uh, but you all should be, uh, those who are interested. Uh, so yeah, my name is Brian Fowler. Uh, I am uh, an ordained minister in the PCA. Uh, I serve as, at AGI as a corporate chaplain, uh, which is a role that I really enjoy getting to pastor uh, to people who are in the workplace, who are uh, living their everyday lives and, and ministering uh, alongside them. So I, from what I understand, uh, connecting with Carlos, this has kind of been the summer of the chaplains for you guys. You had a chaplain last week. You had Jim Paluzzi a couple weeks ago. Uh, so you get the best of the chaplains. All, not me, not me, all of us. All, we're, we're, it's a great ministry, uh, kind of, you know, from my perspective, lesser-known ministry of the PCA. Uh, but we have the privilege uh, to come alongside people in their daily lives and to minister to them. Uh, so this morning, uh, I want to preach to you all from Matthew 25. Matthew, uh, in his gospel, uh, as, as we come to Matthew 25, is, is coming towards the end of his message here. Uh, and as you know, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus teaches routinely in parables. Uh, and today, we're going to have the opportunity to look at one of his last parables. This is the second in a series of four parables uh, that Christ is at Matthew 25, after he's just spoken about. They, they looked uh, him and the disciples were looking at the temple uh, in Jerusalem, and his disciples said, hey, Jesus, what's going to happen to these things? We know we're, you know, we're in Jerusalem, everything's kind of culminating, uh, the, the, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, uh, and the death of Jesus is going to happen in 26, 27, uh, and so we're at the end, and they're looking to Jesus, and they're saying, what's going to happen? And he begins to explain to them about the signs of the time, uh, as, as well as the, the coming of the Son of Man. And then immediately he goes into four parables, beginning in Matthew 24, and then all the way through the end of Matthew 25, teaching three parables in that chapter on the kingdom. What is the kingdom like? What is Jesus impressing upon us as we close his teaching ministry here in the gospel? So if you would listen with me today as I read our text, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the, those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there is not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask that as we have read your word, as we come to reflect upon your word this morning, that you uh, would truly fill us with your word, that you would fill us with your spirit. 
that we might know what it is that Christ would impose upon us, what he would teach us today, that we might know what it means to live by faith, what it means to live in your kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, I uh, have come today with my family, uh, and, and as well as my extended family. This is, I think, the first time I've ever come with my sister, and my in-laws are here. It's like, you know, all, all these people. Uh, but, but in case you don't know who I am, I am very stubborn. Uh, in fact, I am the most stubborn of those in my family. I have three children who, as I always say, the summation of their stubbornness equates to about half of mine. Uh, so, so my wife has her hands full. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, I was in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. I was there for a conference uh, for the PCA, the chaplain conference. Uh, and on Sunday morning, as I like to do when I'm out of town, I went running on the streets of Alabama. Uh, and as I was, I was running, I was, I was running along this main road. I thought, oh, I'm just only going to get to run on the sidewalk. Well, there was this great neighborhood. And I took a detour. I went up into that neighborhood. And the next thing I know, I'm running on all the, If you've never been to Birmingham, it's not like here. There are hills everywhere. And I'm running all over these hills. I grew up in the hills, but I'm running these hills and I haven't done it, and I'm just worn out. But I'm going down the hills, I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to work my way back into this neighborhood and just keep running, running back into this neighborhood. Well, the next thing I know, I'm worn out, I'm tired, and I'm lost in this neighborhood. And I'm trying to figure out how to get out. So I find this guy on the street, he's walking his dog, and I said, hey, how, where's the main road? And he says, oh, you just, just go just this way and you'll hit the main road. It's, it's right around the corner here. So I run up there, I, I hit the road, and it's not the road I'm looking for. It's not the road I came from. So I go back. I said, hey, well, you know, this is the wrong main road. Where's the main road? Well, he points me, and I go in another direction. I run and I run, and I go out there, and it's not the main road again. Uh, you know, and then I'm, I'm now thinking, oh, how am I ever going to get to church? What's going on here? Well, I finally follow that main road in uh, and, and find my way back to the hotel I'm staying at. But the point is this. Maybe some of you all are like me, maybe a little bit stubborn, and you're out there running the streets, and you think, you know, I have the perfect map in my mind of where I'm going. I ran cross-country in high school, I think, all the time. I know what I'm doing, but I didn't know where I was. I was in a new town, in a new place, and I had no clue the map that I had in my mind had one main street, the street that I left from. But in reality, there was four main streets, and I ran to one, and I ran to the other, but I didn't go back to the one where I'd come from. And I was totally lost here in Alabama and needed help to get back. And, and, and what Jesus is really imposing on us here in this parable today, what he is saying to us here in this parable is oftentimes we are like that. We think that we have an understanding of where we're at in this world and in this kingdom as we live our lives in this world, as we think about navigating what job we're going to do, what neighborhood we're going to move to, where we're going to send our kids to school, what we're going to do. We always think we have all the answers figured out in our minds. And Jesus is begging the question, he says, do you really know how to live in this kingdom? Do you really know what it means to live by faith? Do you really know what it means to live in Christ's kingdom by his map, by his rules, by his regulations? Do you know what that kingdom means and how that uh, impacts our lives? Uh, there's a, a good friend of mine, Herman Ritterboss, who died 10 years ago. I don't know him at all. Uh, but a, a great New Testament scholar, um, and he wrote this book called The Coming of the Kingdom, where he says there are three eras in history. There is the era before Christ came and when he came, which is the kingdom is coming. 
And then there's the era that Christ came, which is the kingdom has come. And there's the era where Christ will come again, which is that the kingdom will come. Some people refer to it as the already and the not yet. And what Ritterboss would say to us is, how do we understand, how do we know what it means to live in the already as we're anticipating the not yet? In other words, as we're reflecting on our passage today, what does it mean for us to navigate this life in the already as we're standing there on the edge of the not yet? What Christ is saying to us here in Matthew 25 is we are on the edge of eternity. And the reality is what Christ wants to teach us at the center of this parable is how we live now for eternity is by the very grace of God. How we live now in this life, what we, what we do to navigate this life, is we trust in, we rest in God's grace to us. He's saying that's the, our direction of life. That's where we are heading. That's where we are going. What Christ wants us to see today, he is inviting us onto a journey. He's saying we are, are here living in this life between now and between eternity. And he's inviting us into this journey towards heaven's eternal shores. And he's saying, how do we live now in this life? And what he wants us to see is three things. He wants us to see the dangers of being unprepared, the joy that comes in this journey, and the hope in the completion of this journey. Christ wants us to see that we are on this journey, but there's a danger of being unprepared. There's joy that comes with this journey. And there's hope in the completion of this journey. So let's look at those three things together this morning. First, the joy in the journey. So this parable that Jesus describes for us here from Matthew 25 is a, a parable of these ten virgins who are waiting to come into this wedding feast. Now, just for your understanding and our edification, this is not some sort of normal run-of-the-mill Jewish wedding feast. There's these ten virgins. It's not a harem. They're not about to marry this bridegroom. They're somehow connected to and associated with the bridal party, whether they're friends of the groom, whether they're friends of the bride. Jesus doesn't go into, but it's this very odd situation that they're there. They have to make a journey to go to some other house. The bridegroom's going to pick them up. And now we have picked up in the middle of this story. And these virgins are on this journey. But what we see at the beginning is that they're all on this journey together. And there's one thing that distinguishes them as, as Jesus describes in verses 3 and 4, he says, The foolish virgins took lamps with no oil, but the wise virgins took flasks of oil with their lamps. He says, really, that the, the, these two almost identical sentences. The one set of virgins, who he calls the foolish, took lamps, but no oil with them. The others took lamps with oil. And that's what distinguishes these two groups. So what we see is what happens next is identical for both groups. In verse 5, the bridegroom's delayed. They both become drowsy. In verse 6, they're woken up. In verse 7, they all awake, they all rise, and they all go out. But then on the basis of their previous decisions, this is where the story begins to delineate. Because the foolish virgins say to the wise, can we have your oil? They send them away. They're going to buy the oil. And the bridegroom comes. And what happens? The wise go in, the foolish are left out, and they hear that noise as they're knocking on the door. I never knew you. Depart from me. And what Jesus wants us to see in this danger of being unprepared is this reality of, of what distinguishes these two virgins. What distinguishes their lives? What distinguishes their hope? And what he would say to us today is that the wise virgins hoped in the completion of the journey 
while the foolish virgins only hoped in what they presently had. The wise virgins were hoping in that journey being finished, made every preparation for that end, while the foolish virgins were hoping in what they presently had. In other words, as a popular preacher uh, from Houston, Texas would say, the, the foolish virgins wanted their best life now. They were a bunch of millennials, right? And I can say that because I am one. They, they were only living for themselves. They're only living for what they can touch, what they can feel. They want that immediate gratification. They're not in it for the long haul. They're not in it for the endurance. They're ill-equipped. They're underprepared. And that leaves the, the two trajectories of their lives in totally different places. Because they're only looking at what they possess. They only want what they have right in front of them. They don't have an eternal perspective. They want a life that's filled with ease. They want a life that is coming to them and not something that they have to work for. Not something that, uh, that, that um, requires discipline. That requires faith. That requires seeking that which we do not currently possess. As the writer of Hebrews said, you know, that, that all those who hoped in faith were looking for that city, which was far off, looking for that city which they didn't currently possess. Well, the foolish virgins, they didn't want to live this way. They want to have a life that accomplished, that, that, that accommodated faith. There's um, an, a story, uh, Victor Hugo's um, Les Mis, my mom said don't ruin stories, so I won't ruin this one for you because I'm only going to tell you the beginning. Uh, Victor Hugo's Les Mis, probably all of you have seen it, uh, it, it, it follows two main characters, Jean Valjean and Javert. Well, at the beginning of the, of the story, Jean Valjean is released from prison, right? And he goes uh, to the, the, um, the Pope's house, or not the Pope's, sorry, uh, the priest's house. He steals the silver from the priest. The priest releases him. Uh, and then he goes off to live this life as, as he uh, has, has this silver. He lives this life as kind of the mayor of this little community. Well, early on in that story, Javert comes back into the picture. He comes into town. And he comes and he, and, and he kind of realizes who Jean Valjean is. And he pulls him aside. And he says, hey, there's, there's some bad news. There's this prisoner. He's 24601, the same number as Jean Valjean. And he says, this prisoner has been found. And he's going to stay in trial. And Jean Valjean is, is, is now in this crisis. He's thinking, what do I do? Do I reveal my true identity or, or do I just, you know, fade away and let this man take the penalty for what I've done? And so he sings this song. I won't sing it from the pulpit this morning, but he sings this song. And, he, and he's in the midst of this internal conflict. What do I do? Do I do what's right? Or do I do what's easy? Do I do what's true? Or do I slip away into obscurity and, and do what is easy and convenient for me and safe for me? And if you've seen the movie, if you've read the book, you all know the result. He, he goes into the court, he stands up, and he does what is right. He says, no, I have to do what's true. I have to do what's real. I have to live by truth. And that's what Jesus is calling us to here. He said, no, we must live this life that is marked by truth. We must live this life that is real, this life that has character, this life that requires faith, that requires faith in what is real. What God is asking of us, what he's imposing upon us, what he's calling to us in his kingdom. We cannot choose this life of ease, but Jesus calls us to this life of faith. And the question is, what does this life of faith look like? What does this mean for us? Well, let me think of a few questions here. In, in our work, do we do what's convenient for us? Do we do what's easy for us? Or do, 
Do we see our work as service to God and do what is glorifying to Him? Do we give ourselves over to that, or do we just say, you know, let me just provide the minimum line. Let me just do what's minimum, minimally required. Or do we see ourselves as servants of God, as servants of His kingdom, as we go into our work, as we live out our lives? As we raise our children, as, as we're with our families, do we trust God in those places? Or do we do it on our own, relying on our own instincts, on our own uh, understanding? Or do we trust God and look to Him in how we raise our families and how we accomplish our work? Are we honest with our abilities? Are we honest if we can't get it all done, or do we take on too much for ourselves? Do we know the place of rest and of work in our lives? Do we allow others to enter into rest? Do we allow ourselves to do that? In the words of the confession, do we see our faith as something that we simply confess with our lips or also as something that we must to practice in our lives? Jesus is calling us to this life, this life that is of faith, this life that is not easy, but this life that, as he describes us, is filled with joy. This joy that comes with serving the king, with living in his kingdom. And that's where we turn to next is, what is this life of joy marked by? What does it look like? Well, Jesus says that there are these two virgins, as we discussed, and the wise virgins took oil, uh, took extra oil with them in their flasks along with their lamps. Uh, And and what we see is that they realize that this, this journey that they had set out on, that the hope is in the completion of that journey. That the joy is in being there in the wedding feast. And, and you think about this for a second, as, as this journey began, these two groups of virgins, you think the wise, the foolish. Well, the wise looked pretty foolish at the beginning of this journey. Because where are they going? Well, they're going to a wedding. Does anyone go to a wedding bringing a bunch of oil with them? Or in our culture today, if I'm going to a wedding in Richmond, and I'm going to fill up my car full tank of gas and then put a bunch of gallons of gas in my trunk. Everyone would say, you're crazy. But I'm saying, no, 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 no. You don't know how bad the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel gets. I don't want to get stuck on that tunnel and miss the wedding. And that's what these virgins are doing. They're saying, look, I don't want any possibility in missing out on the completion of this journey and missing out on what's promised here at the end. Because I'm hoping in that eternity. And that's what is the distinction. That's the delineation here that Jesus is describing. He's saying, look, the wise virgins found their joy in the fulfillment of God's promises. As Mike Allen would say in his book, Ground in the Heaven, hope for what God has promised tomorrow should shape our lives today. What God is promising to us, what those virgins are looking for in that completion should shape how we are living now, how we are living presently. That's what they're seeing. That's what they're hoping. And that's what their lives are grounded in. The shape of their lives is grounded in Christ's eternal promise. And so what do they do in response to that? Well, we see in verses 8 and 9, as, as it, it comes to a, a, a head here in the text, the foolish virgins come to the wise, and, and this is the greatest example of evangelism in the Bible. The foolish say, hey, give us your oil. They say, no, 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 you guys got to go away, right? You know, that's, that's what the church is called to do, not really. But what is Christ really teaching us here? As we begin to ponder over their response, 
As the wise virgins say to the foolish, no, you got to go away because we're hoping here in this oil that we have, we're hoping in the completion of this journey. And, and we really can't read this parable outside of what Jesus is teaching us in the final four parables of his kingdom, the final four parables of this gospel. And the last parable, if you know, one of the most famous parables, the last parable, the parable of the separation of the goats and the sheep, and, and he describes this final judgment. He describes two categories of people. He describes one who hears the same uh, declaration that the foolish virgins hear, hear in this story. Depart from me, I never knew you. And in Jesus' last parable in Matthew 25 and verse 40, there are these two groups of people. There are these sheep and these goats. The goats hear this, these words and are cast off into hell. I never knew you, depart from me. But what distinguishes these groups in Matthew 25 verse 40? Jesus said, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. In other words, Jesus is saying that the whole joy of the Christian life is wrapped up in how we serve God and how we serve others. The whole joy that these virgins are living towards is how we are serving God and how we're serving others. That's the hope they're finding in the present. That's the hope they're finding as they go along this journey. This hope in service, this hope in what God is promising, saying we have the freedom to go out and live for this kingdom now. We have the freedom to go out and live for this king now, live as ambassadors for this king now. In other words, Jesus is saying, how do we care for those who are the least among us? How do we find hope in the journey as we care for others, as we serve others? Do we only in our work, in our lives, communicate with, talk with, work with people who look, think, act, smell like us? Or do we make room for those who have disabilities? Do we make room for those who have neurodiversities? Do we make room for those who are of, of another gender or ethnicity? Are we challenged by Jesus' words on how we are serving others in our lives? Are we challenged as we live in this kingdom, as we find joy in what it means to serve Christ, to serve the King, and to serve our neighbor? My kids and I, we really enjoy watching from time to time uh, this YouTube phenomenon called flash mobs. I don't know if you guys have ever seen them, uh, but it's, you know, the, the idea is someone's at a shopping mall, uh, you know, someone's out in a public square, this group of people, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the National Symphony or Coldplay or some, you know, great group of musicians comes together and begins to put on this concert right there in front of everybody. And what is amazing, what I enjoy every time about seeing it is, you know, these people are sitting there eating at the food court. They're sitting there in this public square. And all of a sudden, you know, Chris Martin from Coldplay is standing five feet away from them. And he's putting on a concert in front of them. Everyone begins to smile. Everyone begins to participate. And they begin to be lifted up by that moment. And they begin to have this, this sense of hope, this sense of joy. And, and, and what Jesus is saying for us here is that the joy that we experience in the journey is like that. That there are these places in our lives, as, as Ken so excellently mentioned in his confession of sin, that when we are asking for God to come in, God, would you help my family? God, would you help me with this project I have at work? God, would you be present? And we see those glimpses, we see those breadcrumbs as God breaks in. 
as the joys of heaven are manifest in our present lives. And we see and we know by faith, no, God is real, God is working, God is active, he is present. And it increases our hope. It increases our joy. And Jesus is commending that life to us. He's saying, look, this life is hard. But this life that's lived by faith is full of joy. It's full of joy as God breaks in, as his presence is with us, as his presence is made known to us. As we get to experience the hope of that kingdom that is coming, breaking into our present lives. And that's what, if, if we think about it, that's what the martyrs hoped in, the martyrs of the church. That's what the reformers hoped in. That's what Dr. King hoped in when he made that speech, I have a dream. What was he looking towards? What were they looking towards? God's perfected realities breaking into our present lives, transforming what we currently see to be a, a reflection of God's eternal kingdom and God's eternal hope. And Jesus is saying, while this life is hard, while this life is filled with suffering, while this life has its sorrows, it is sorrows filled with joy. As Peter said, consider it all joy, brethren, when you suffer. Because it's an opportunity for God, by his grace, to show his steadfastness as we trust in him. As we hope in his finished reality breaking into our present lives. And that's finally where we turn in, in our parable and our message today is what is that hope of completion? Again, as we said over and over again, the virgins, the wise virgins are hoping in this journey being complete. They're, they're making all preparations and saying, we want what God has promised. We want the hope that he has set aside for us. We want what is promised to us in heaven. We want that reality for our present lives and for our lives forever. And so as they set out on this journey, they make every preparation. As they set out on this journey, they hope in that future. They hope in that promise. But as we come to the end, we have to think, okay, so what does distinguish these two groups? If we look and, and, and begin to diagnose what is the hope of these two groups, what is the reality of these two groups, is it that the wise virgins, that they get there to the end because, well, they're more prepared? You know, so as a Christian, well, it's all about being more prepared. Let's all carry oil around with us everywhere we go, right? What Jesus is saying is, no, the reality of the Christian life is it's all of grace. That our hope is given to us by God. Because think about it. As we saw in our text, both sets of virgins fell asleep. Both sets of virgins had to be aroused. The one set of virgins had that oil, but Why? Because they knew there was a promise. Why did they know there was a promise? Because it was given to them by the king. Because they knew there was hope in being there at the marriage feast. Not because of anything they had done, but, but because of a reality that had been done for them, because of a reality that had been revealed to them, because they knew that the hope is in God's finished work. And we see that work clearly and completely in the cross of Jesus Christ. That God, by his grace, sacrificed himself for us, giving his life in our place in order that our hope might be his hope forever, that we might have heaven forever. Not because of who we are, not because we're more prepared, not because we're better people, but because of God's grace and his love for us through Jesus Christ. 
because he gave himself in order that we might have life forever because of Jesus, because he loves us through Jesus, because he saved us through Jesus, because his love is manifest to us through the grace of his sacrifice in our place. Last weekend, my wife and I, we watched a movie called uh, 13 Lives, uh, which I, I don't often recommend from the pulpit movies or TV shows. I mentioned them. This one, highly recommend. Phenomenal movies on Amazon Prime, just in case you want to know. Uh, but the movie is about uh, the, the, you might have heard the story back in 2018, there was a soccer team in Thailand, 12 boys and a coach, 13 of them all together. They were practicing soccer. They went into these caves after they were done. It's, you know, kind of a national landmark in their town in Thailand. They went into these caves. Well, monsoon season was a week off, but a monsoon hit. And the boys were all flooded out in the cave there with their coach. And immediately, as they didn't come home for dinner, the whole community responds. Well, within days, thousands of people from across, 5,000 people in total helped to rescue these boys. They had people on the top of the mountain trying to block the water from coming in. And these expert cave divers from Britain, they came in, and after nine days, they found the boys. And after 16 days, they saved them. I won't tell you how. You've got to watch the movie because that's the secret. I won't tell you that. Amazing movie. But here's the reality. When it was all over, the governor of the town, he had everyone together at this press conference, said, you guys are all here, 5,000 people, 17 countries. He said, you're all here because you love these boys. Now, none of the divers knew the boys. No one who was involved in the rescue, no one who responded, but they knew the severity of the situation, the reality, the tragedy of what was going on. And out of love, they moved and responded. And how much more does Christ, in seeing our state, as we've confessed together this morning, being in our sin, and he moves, seeing us, as it were, being stuck there back in this cave, and he brings us out into this reality of life, into this reality of hope, into this reality of promise because of his great love for us, because of his great mercy to us. Christ moves, he acts, he saves, and he lays for us the foundation of this life that's full of joy, this life that's full of hope, this life that is lived to his kingdom. Let's close in prayer. Christ, we do ask this day that you might move in us, that you might cause our joy to be complete because of the hope of your finished work on the cross, because of the promise of eternity with you, because of the power of your resurrection. May you move in us today, in our homes, in our work, in our lives. May you form us and shape us to be citizens of your kingdom. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.